Our Father, we are grateful this morning to be able to be reminded by other people, even in song, about how grand you are and how extraordinary you are and how different from us you are. Thank you that your promises will always be steadfast and always remain, that you not only want what is good for your children, but you have the absolute certain power and authority to make sure that your will is done. And we find great encouragement and comfort, not only in these truths, but ultimately we find encouragement and comfort in you, the great God who's a personal God. Help us now as we open your word together to understand, to be changed, to respond as worshipers. In Jesus' name, amen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Familiar words to Christians. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've heard those words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what do those words mean? Are you beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Sometimes familiarity, we're used to hearing it. We hear it again and again and we say, I know those words, reminds me of a song or something like that. Sometimes familiarity leads to indifference. We're so used to hearing it. We've heard it so many times. It resonates with us. But we're beyond thinking about what it means. We're beyond thinking about its significance, its weightiness. We're beyond thinking about whether or not we actually are doing it. So this morning we are going to talk about what it means to behold or be beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 1 once again. I promise we are going to get back to our study of the gospel according to Luke. It won't be this week. It won't be next week. It won't be the next week. I can almost promise it will be the next week, but my yes is to be yes and my no is to be no, and I shouldn't have to promise. But that's the intent, to get back on track there. What does it mean? I think if you really know what it means and if you you feel a sense of the significance of what it is and you just stop and think about it, that you will want to be beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I want you to be wanting to do that and to be shocked back into the basics, if you will, and to be reminded of this great reality. John chapter 1, verse 29, John chapter 1, verse 36 are very similar, and they really are our two key texts that will be all over John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 29 reads, The next day he, referring to John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then if you look down at verse 36, It says, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. To behold something or to behold someone is to look at them. It is to pay attention to them. It is to 
Listen to them. It's a, it's just a dramatic call to respond. To respond to something uh, great, or even in other places in the literature, it's to respond to something awful. But it is something that's worthy of your attention, worthy of your, 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 your focused attention, worthy of your, your listening like you wouldn't listen otherwise. Behold, listen up, pay attention, watch. That's the idea. And here John is saying that about Jesus. Why? Why behold Jesus? Why listen to Jesus with riveted ears? Why look to Jesus like you wouldn't look to anybody else? And I think we can answer that question, and that's what we're going to endeavor to do this morning by looking at John 1. Not just those verses, but verses surrounding those verses, so that we can better appreciate what it means, why to do it, so that hopefully, by God's grace, you might find yourself beholding. So that I can say before you go, and if I don't remember, I'll say it now. So that you might be beholding. Hopefully that's what happens. Typically we behold celebrities. We behold experts. We behold athletes. We behold actors and actresses. But here in our passage it says, Behold the Lamb. Behold Jesus. Well, we're going to learn about why we would do that. But interestingly enough, just one more technical note before we move on beyond the first word, behold. I never really thought about it before. I never noticed before. It's probably old news to all of you Bible experts. Behold is a command. It's in the imperative. For you studying Greek, it's an aorist imperative. You behold. John the Baptist shows up and it's not this kind of generic kind of statement. He's saying, this is what you need to do. This is what you must do. No doubt it's because of who Jesus is. Making it personal. Pat Abendroth. You behold Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Esteem Jesus. Like you esteem and listen to and focus on. How about this? No one else. beyond a good idea. It's what must be done. It's what must be done. You know how it is when you learn something you hadn't noticed before, and I think, that's good to know. I'm really glad. Never read it again the same way. Christians need to be beholding Jesus. Guess what? Unbelievers that John was talking to need to be beholding Jesus. Really not moving beyond that. So now some important reasons. I have a list of seven of them, and we'll work our way through these seven. Some we'll focus on a little bit more than others, but some reasons why we would do this, why it's a command in the Bible. Why in the world would that be the case? Number one, reason number one to be beholding Jesus is because he's greater than the greatest. He's greater than the greatest. The greatest person who ever 
lived up until his point in time is none other than Solomon? No. Moses? No. Abraham? No. David? No. Daniel? No. The greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, Matthew 11, 11 says, Bible trivia people, it's John the Baptist. I just heard, so I, I don't know if you said John the Baptist or not. Maybe that's how you wanted to come across. True or false test. You just put kind of a T and an F together and hope your teacher gives you the benefit of the doubt. Good job, everybody. John the Baptist is who it is. Matthew eleven eleven says he's the greatest man who ever lived up until this point in time. We can understand why that would be the case. Because if you're a prophet of God as he was, you, you speak for God. You're a mouthpiece for God, if you will. He gives you revelation. You just echo what he says. Well, that's an esteemed position. A prophet has an esteemed position, whether you're Jeremiah or Isaiah but, or, or any of the others. But, but here we have John the Baptist, who's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And those other guys indeed were looking forward to Jesus. But he's the one who gets to see him. He's, he, he's the one who actually sees the, 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 the prophecy, if you will, come to pass. It makes him the greatest. And the greatest man who ever lived in John chapter 1 goes out of his way. To make sure that we understand Jesus is greater. He's remarkably greater. Let's go ahead and see. If you go to John chapter 1 verse 27, it says, Even he who comes after me, specifically he who comes after me, he says, The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. John chapter 1 verse 30 says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Which is pretty amazing in light of Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. Because John was conceived and born before Jesus. He's before me because he's greater than me. John, John doesn't even know of the significance of that which he speaks. Um, he's greater than him. John chapter 1 verse 15. We looked at just a little while ago. If I recall. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Yeah, he's greater than John the Baptist. That's for sure. John chapter 1, verse 1, familiar words to us. The Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. That certainly outranks John by a bazillion points. John chapter 1, verse 10, the world was made through him. Yeah, that outranks John. We're not going to take the time to go there. We could start going beyond chapter 1 and seeing John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am, and the list goes on. Behold, application class, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God because He's greater than even the greatest. And we can argue from the greater to the lesser, the lesser to the greater, I should say. Who do we behold naturally? And there's a place for beholding maybe on a lower level, celebrities and, and our different cultural icons. People who are experts in their field and we say, wow, they're the best at what they do. Well, that's normal, natural. I'm not telling you not to do that. But if Jesus is greater than the greatest legitimate spokesperson for God, 
We need to be beholding him like we behold no one else. I love it. It motivates me. It makes sense why this is said to us. We esteem him. We pay attention to him. We look to him. We behold him. When it comes to celebrity, one of the things that uh, I find interesting about living in Omaha is we don't have any. I mean, <laughs> I lived in L.A. for a while. It's different. You know, you got to call your friend on the phone and say, I saw Sly Stallone at the golf course, you know. Wow. You go to Nashville and you're like, you know, oh, we, we were sitting there uh, having breakfast and there's Nicole Kidman. She said, excuse me to Molly while she went to the bathroom. You know, you're going, this is just celebrity place. Or if I, if I travel somewhere, every once in a while I travel somewhere outside of the country and people say, well, where are you from? Well, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, which is like saying I'm from Pluto. You know, I mean, it's like, so you say, you say, you know, in the very middle of the United States. And they're like, okay, they understand middle. Um, <clears throat> if you said New York, you know, you said um, D.C. or California, someplace where the mouse lives. I mean, <laughs> if you say something like that, they're like, oh, yeah, Disney. I know, I know California or I know Hollywood or uh, Omaha. Omaha. But one time I was in someone's home after a Sunday service in a different country, and it was a, a wealthy family. They had an extraordinary home, and we're having a great meal and just relaxing, exhaling, and we're sitting there, and the, and the man said, now, where are you from in the United States? And I said, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm ready to explain myself. And he goes, Omaha, Nebraska? You're from Omaha, Nebraska? I said, yeah. <laughs> Husker fan? No, I <laughs> mean... See, I can talk about it today. I couldn't talk about it last week. But anyway, you're from Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, he was like, stop, stop the press. It's Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska, where Warren Buffett lives? I said, yeah, Omaha, Nebraska, where Warren Buffett lives. Oh, I've read this book about him and that book about him. And I've read these things that he's done. And I've listened. And, and Warren Buffett. And, and what's it like to live in Omaha, Nebraska? You know, and I'm going... Just tell me about it. Can you see him? Have you ever seen him? And, and what's he like? And, and I'm thinking, I want to talk about something like the grandeur of substitutionary atonement, which is what we talked about all morning at church today. And so here was my way of putting the kibosh on the whole thing. Respectfully, I hope, I said something like, you know... I don't really know his philosophies. I've never read anything by him. I've never really read anything. I don't have any books about him or by him. Um, obviously, he's great at what he does. Um, I don't know much. I do know his home phone number by heart, and I was once given a key to his house, past the salt. Let's talk about atonement. And now he really didn't want to talk about atonement. He really wanted to talk about Warren Buffett. And I didn't want to talk about Warren Buffett at all. Other than to say he's a normal person who's really good at what he does. Isn't Christ magnificent? Now maybe we talked a little bit more than that. But the people who are the very best at what they do. And we can certainly give honor where honor is due. Don't misunderstand will be pushing up the daisies in no time. In no time. 
Behold. Hear that as, as the aorist imperative that it is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Esteem Him. Focus on Him. Listen to Him. We would be insane not to. We'd be insane not to. Let's move on now. Let's move on now to number two. Another reason we would want to do this. and That's because He's from heaven. He's from heaven. In other words, He's from the outside. He's from God. We see this in verse 29 itself where we read, Behold the Lamb, and then it says, Of God. Read the, the, the Lamb who, who, who's from God, who's been provided by God, which, by the way, is going to be tied to grace, which is going to be tied to mercy, which is tied to God's gift. If the Lamb is from, from God, from heaven, in other words, if He comes from God, we, we haven't earned Him. He's been given to us. But He's been given to us, again, not from a peer or from a philosophy or a concept. He's been given to us from heaven itself. He, he's been given to us by God. Well, let's behold Him then. If He comes to us from none other than the Father, it would make sense that we would would behold Him. Think about the fact that Jesus is the Lamb, so He is the atoning sacrifice. We'll get to that for sure. But He's our atoning sacrifice that comes from where? That comes from ourselves? We don't go and make atonement with bringing our own Lamb. It's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. It's our sin. What do we contribute to salvation? As people have said now for a long time, insightfully, we contribute the problem. But God provides the Lamb, and the Lamb is what provides atonement. And so when we talk about Jesus, why in the world would we behold Him? We would behold Him because He comes from God. He didn't come from ourselves. He didn't come from some other good teacher. He comes from none other than God. Once again, I can't help but draw your attention back to this in in verse 16 where he says things at the end of 16 like grace upon grace. See, this isn't our provision. It's God's heavenly provision. He says again, the law came through Moses and then it says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This This is grace. This is gifted to us. Even the fact that it says... At the end of verse 18, he has made him known. He, he, is, he has explained him. How about this? You could even translate it. He has interpreted him. God doesn't owe it to us to explain himself. He explained himself in creation and we've perverted it a la Romans 1. And yet God is gracious enough to say, you know what? But I'm going to make it clear. I'm going to undo what you've perverted. And I'm going I'm I'm to interpret myself once again for clarity's sake. I'm going to do it through Jesus. He's the Lamb of God comes from God. I'm intrigued. I don't want to get bogged down on this. But I'm intrigued by John's statement two different times. I think at least two in chapter 1 verse 31 and chapter 1 verse 33 where he says, I myself did not know him. And sometimes we miss that. I myself did not know him. It wasn't like he sought after this and he figured it out and he discovered this. So behold me. I'm a good philosopher. No, behold the Lamb of God. I didn't seek Him. I didn't know Him. But God graciously made Himself known through Him. Grace upon grace. This is why we behold Him. Because He's of God. He's from heaven. He's, to use a big fancy word, He he transcends. Uh, He's beyond us. He came from the outside. 
even think about how we in our pop culture, we love things from the outside. Now we get it confused because then we love things from the inside. But on one level, we love things from the outside. Someone claims to go somewhere outside. Someone claims to go to heaven and they're bestseller times millions. Even if what they say contradicts the Bible times millions. We, we're fascinated by secrets. We're fascinated by the unknown. We, 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 we're addicted to this stuff. And I'm going to suggest to you, there's actually something, even though, even though that, that addiction is twisted and broken and, and off kilter, no doubt there's something in us that longs for this something from the outside. Something from heaven. We're just looking for, for it on all the wrong places. But that, that desire that we have that's twisted can actually be met and fulfilled in the one who comes from the outside. The one who, who, who is mysterious, the one who is, is secret, if you will, apart from God's gracious revelation, is Jesus because he's the Lamb of God. The true Lamb of God. The true one who's from heaven. The rightful point of that curiosity, where it finds ultimate satisfaction comes from heaven. Let's move on to another one. Number three, another important reason for beholding Jesus. He's one of us. He's one of us. Not in contradiction, but in compliment. He's from the outside. He's not one of us. We need someone from the outside. But you know what? He, he becomes one of us. And he's, we talk about incarnation in the flesh is what that is. It's just as important that he become one of us. Look at verse 29 again. But now we're going to look at a different place. Put the emphasis on a different syllable. Look what it says in verse 29. I overuse that, sorry. <clears throat> the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And that's the stuff that we think is irrelevant. And I'm going to suggest to you it's not irrelevant. He saw Jesus coming toward him. He's not a phantom real incarnation, real human being. And the Bible belabors this elsewhere. He, he's, he's truly human. We need him to truly be human because he needs to represent us as Adam did. We need him to be uh, an atoning sacrifice for us and not just a phantom sacrifice for us. Maybe if you would just glance at verses... Oh, 9, 10, 11, 14, more of this, uh, not to belabor it, but I really do you want, do want you to see it, where it says um, in verse 9, toward the end, coming into the world. Verse 10, in the world. Verse 11, he came to his own. Verse 14, we read it for scripture reading, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then my favorite verse for the day, other than our key verse, and that is verse 28. It's my favorite because I kind of like some shock value, and it seems like it shouldn't be our favorite. Uh, here's your life verse for the day, your day verse. Verse 28 says, These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now that's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Prone to overstatement, okay. But why would I say that? I didn't say it's the most important. I said it's one of the most important. Because he's really here. Real geography. Real markers. Real planet Earth. He's, he's really here. He really is dwelling among us. So much so that I can tell you the coordinates if I would have had GPS. 
A real spot on the dirt. Behold the Lamb of God. Because He was really here. Why do we need Him to really be here? I've already mentioned it. I mentioned it as much as I can. We need Him to really be here because we're really here. And we really have guilt. It's not just in your imagination. Ask for a refund from your counselor if they say it is. It's real. That guilt that you feel is real. Sin is real. You need guilt removed. Jesus really can do it because He really came here and He really was one of us. And He's really going to go to the cross and He's really going to die and He's really going to rise and He's really going to ascend to the point where He really is at the Father's right hand right now claiming us as His own. Yes! Behold the Lamb of God! That's why we would behold Him. He's one of us. I mentioned it before, I'll mention it again, and that's um, appreciation for things that they probably didn't even realize the significance of what they were saying when whoever wrote the Apostles' Creed wrote it. It's that statement where they said, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's a good statement because it marks that confession of faith as tied to not what's in your heart, even though that's important, not just what's true in the spiritual realm, though that's important, but it ties the work of Jesus to historical events that really happened just as Pontius Pilate is a real historic person. And I'll remind you of what I've reminded you of before. You, you, you need him to be a real historic person because you are. And John goes out of his way, not just in John 1, but throughout his gospel accounts, not to mention 1 John emphasizing humanity like crazy. That's why we would behold him. He's our, he's our elder brother. He's more than that, yes, but he's not less than that. Number four, another reason, an important reason why we would want to behold Jesus, and it's why it makes sense, and that's because he's the lamb. And this is the obvious one you were thinking of, and I'm glad you were thinking of that, but I just wanted to see the context a little bit and help you see more than the obvious. But the obvious one, he's the lamb. Verse 29, again, behold the lamb of God, or maybe for emphasis, behold the lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God on different levels. He doesn't tell us exactly what he means. There's a lot of talk about what was he getting at and what did he know? What did he understand? What did the Old Testament say? Well, how about, let's just leave it more generic. He doesn't explain. He's the Lamb of God, A, the Lamb of God who's the Passover Lamb, right? We know he actually is the Passover Lamb because of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because Jesus is the Passover Lamb and, and, and he's the one who, who was the ultimate, uh, the, the one mentioned in Exodus, Exodus 12. He's the lamb so that we're passed over and not judged. He's the lamb of Isaiah 53 or like the lamb of Isaiah 53, verse 7. Oppressed, afflicted, yet open not his mouth like a lamb. He's certainly the ultimate substitute, which is Isaiah 53. It's about the ultimate substitute. Mentioned as a lamb. He's the lamb that would conquer and reign if we fast forward to the book of Revelation. He, he's the, what did somebody call him? He's the apocalyptic conquering lamb. 
Revelation chapter 5 and other places where, where he not only is the slain one, he is the standing one, he's the conquering one, he's the one who will rule and reign. He's the Lamb of God. That's why we behold him. He's that one. He's that one. Choose your favorite Bible character and there are some great ones. And realize that if you could sit down with them and have them mentor you right now, they would want you to not behold them as much as they would want you to behold Jesus because He's the Lamb. He's the Lamb. Let's move on. A fifth important reason for beholding Jesus as the Lamb, and that's because He's the sin remover. He's the sin remover. This is another one that would have been more obvious. Verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, here it is, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the sin remover. He takes away the sin of the world. Theological word for the day, just so you don't think you need a refund when you leave, you didn't get enough theology, is the word expiation expiation fancy theological word it means removal Jesus work removes the guilt of our rebellion he takes it away in other words he expiates it. he gets rid of it now let me role play a little bit here and dramatize you'll see that I never took drama uh, actually I did one one class in college it was a, it was helpful for my GPA and I needed that um, the lamb takes away sin well that sure sounds like a good idea for those bad people that's good because you know sinners they need expiation Thanks, Pastor, for giving me a theological word that I can apply to all bad people that I know. Because I know some bad people. Right? What sin? John records for us what sin is in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says, it's pretty simple. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Yeah, I know a lot of lawbreakers. Good thing we have expiation, Pastor, because I know lawbreakers and they're bad because I've got one of those police scanners. There's a lot of bad people. Sin is lawlessness. What's the law say? Certainly the law brings guilt where we do bad things. But certainly the law also exposes guilt where we, how about this, don't do the right thing. And Jesus says the right thing He's just referencing the Old Testament, Matthew 22, where he's asked, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to summarize the whole law. Remember, sin is lawlessness. I'm going to summarize the whole thing, and the whole thing is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
In other words, you love him with all your faculties all of the time. Sin is lawlessness. And now all those bad people I know out there are people like me. Because I don't love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to mention the second, which is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So I go from telling other people, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. To saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, sin is lawlessness. And, and I'm a lawbreaker because I don't love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And neither do you. And now I say, ah, it makes lots of sense. I want to behold him. I want you to tell me, Pat, behold the Lamb of God. Listen to the Lamb of God. Pay attention to the Lamb of God. Give him your attention like you would give no one else your attention, like you'd give it to no other celebrity or yourself, because, Pat, he can expiate the guilt of your refusal to love God, which is what you were made to do. And now all of a sudden I'm saying, this is good. I'm saying, talk to me some more. <laughs> see, that law shows us our guilt. We see our need for the Savior. We need to hear John the Baptist, whether we're Baptists or not. Behold the Lamb of God. He's the sin remover. You know, to the degree that we understand our level of guiltiness, it's the teeter-totter effect. We understand the weightiness of our guilt. And we understand the significance and the greatness and the, the high level of, of esteem that we should show Christ. It makes sense then that we would behold Him. Now let's move on. We'd love to talk about humanity's greatest dilemma being that, but we need to move on. Number six, an important reason for beholding Jesus, and that's because He's the great Savior. He's the great Savior. And I want to emphasize this before your eyes and have you see the greatness that it comes at the end of verse 29. Who takes away the sin. Here's the great statement. The sin of the world. If He takes away the sin of the world, that, that's a great statement. Not so impressive. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Nazareth. That insignificant place where He's from. Wrong side of the tracks. No, it would get better though. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jews. And there are lots of them. Used to not be a lot of them, but now there are a lot of them. And, and so that's, that's important. And, and, and he ratchets it, up, ratchets it up so much higher. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And maybe just for, for effect, even if it's not really getting at the, the matter at hand per se, I mean, just think about how big the world is. He, he purposely uses a really all-inclusive word. And you, when you get on a plane and you fly across the ocean and they show you that little thing up on the screen with the little plane going, and you're going, I'm, I'm going, I hope it doesn't go down because we're smoke. But, oh, there's some land, maybe we, anyway, you go, this, the world is huge. I don't think that's how he's using world here per se, but, but it's, it's related because it's great and huge and grand. And then you meet people from the other side of the planet. And they, 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 they look different and they talk different. And then you go to a, a super densely populated area, you, you leave our little suburbanity kind of thing that we live in with rolling hills and lots of space. And you go, wow, there are a lot of people in this world. 
least helps us to realize he's a great savior. That's why he's using world kind of talk. So many different kinds of people. So many people on the planet. Planet's so big. Jesus is a great savior. If he's the savior of the world, if he's the one who removes sin, not just of certain people, but I take it what he's getting at is all different kinds of people. And I don't want to get bogged down here. But when he says, takes away the sin of the world, I don't think he's saying he's promoting universalism. And now you're into a big theological debate. Jesus doesn't believe in universalism. John the Baptist doesn't believe in universalism. Even John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son, absolutely. And John 3.18, and those who don't believe are condemned. Make sure you keep 3.16 and 3.18 together. There is such a thing as condemnation. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. You've all heard that kind of stuff before. It's true. Read the book of Revelation in chapter 20, and you do see condemnation is real, and people really are condemned. John uses world in a lot of different ways. But one way he certainly uses it is to talk about not only Jews, but also Gentiles. I, I think that's how he's using it here. He's the Savior of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. This is where theologians say, it's the world without distinction, not the world without exception. Because if it's the world without exception, then no one is guilty and no one goes to hell. That's why belief in Christ in John three sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. 17, 18, I don't want to get lost in the details, but I at least want you to realize that John uses it this way a lot. You'll, when you read John, and you say, he, he, he's the propitiation for our sins, the, the, the atonement for our sins, First John 2, 2. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Is it really true that he satisfies the wrath of God for everyone who's ever been born, including people who are in hell now? That's a problem. It's a problem with justice. I would submit to you that from passages like John 11, other passages, realize John's a Jewish person talking to Jewish people in somewhat scandalous, but wonderful, because I'm a Gentile, I think. He's not the Savior and propitiation for the Jews only. He's the Savior and propitiation for Jew and Gentile. By the way, that includes every single kind of person. Germans, Czechs, Hispanics, Asians, French, Africans. He's the Savior of the world. Everyone who trusts in Him, everyone who ever would trust in Him, He's provided perfect atonement for. He's a great Savior. 
That leads us to number seven. He's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. If He takes away the sin of the world, that is as big as the scope can be, right? Everybody who's alive or who's lived has been living in the world. And if He's the Savior of the world, then He's the one and only Savior. I mean, we, all, we, we like to have inclusivity because that's what we are comfortable with and it's PC to be inclusive. Christianity is super inclusive. Jesus is uber inclusive. He's the Savior of the world. But we have to remember that if He's the one and only Savior, the Savior of the world, the very thing that makes Him inclusive is the very same thing that makes Him exclusive. He's the one and only Savior. He's the one and only Savior. The apostles understood this. That's why Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given under heaven. He's the Savior of the world. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the one and only Savior. If He's the one and only Savior, John the Baptist is going to say, Behold! Command mode, aorist imperative, Listen, pay attention. Behold the Lamb, oh, by the way, from God, who expiates, who takes away sin. We would be absolutely crazy. We would absolutely be turned off and upside down and irrational if we didn't behold Him. So He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one and only Savior. I want to suggest to you that if you're not a Christian, John the Baptist's message is for you. And if you don't like Baptists because you've known a few in your life that didn't set well with you, John the Baptizer! John the one who baptized! His message is pertinent for you. Unless you've kept the law and you haven't. But if you're a Christian... And you're trusting in Christ as your atoning sacrifice for your expiation and your propitiation and your justification and all your other actions that are really important. And you, you know how to cross those T's. Good job. Seriously. But why would you be moving on to other things and beholding other things and other people at the level where you'd really want to be beholding Jesus. Doesn't make any sense. Be beholding Jesus. Be beholding Jesus. Esteeming Him, listening to Him, valuing Him. It's a gracious message from God to us. Father, thank You for our time in Your Word. Thank You for time thinking about this interaction that took place between John and Jesus. We're grateful that it did take place. We're grateful that these things are significant and weighty for us. Assist us as we seek to be beholding Jesus, the one who is none other than the author and perfecter of the faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.